invite you to bow your heads and pray together with me. Lord God, I pray that the words I'm about to speak and the thoughts that we think as we meditate on your word for us today, Lord, I pray that that would all be truly acceptable in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I love Christmas music. And in fact, there's a, a battle that happens uh, in, in my life and in our house every year because you see, the rule is you wait until Thanksgiving is over before you start playing Christmas music, right? And, uh, but I will admit that uh, I've got the radio in my car tuned to the Christmas music stations, ready to go the moment Thanksgiving is over. And uh, as my son said to me at Thanksgiving this time, um, he said, Dad, have you listened to Christmas music yet? And I said, no. And he looked at me and said, you're lying, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. I <laughs> actually have, just a little. Um, but one of my favorite Christmas songs is by Bing Crosby. It's Home for Christmas, right? I'll be home for Christmas. Just, just one of my favorite Christmas songs. It was first written in 1943, actually, and it was written uh, when World War II was just heating up um, written actually earlier in the year, and then the final version in September uh, was released to the public, and it became the greatest Christmas song of all time, the greatest selling Christmas song uh, of all time. Now, the idea, when you think about the lyrics, is pretty simple. It was um, uh, some hope and encouragement. They believed this war is going to be over quickly, um, and, uh, and all of our GIs, all of our sons and daughters who are fighting overseas are going to be home for Christmas. That was the idea. But of course, as Christmas drew nearer, they had to add that last line at the end, I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams, because they realized the war was going to take longer than that, okay? Now, how many of you think you know this song, I'll be home for Christmas? All right, let's see how you do. Um, I'm going to play a part of the song, and then it's going to stop, and I want you, when it stops, to turn to the person sitting next to you and tell them what the next line of the song is, okay? Are you ready? Here we go. I'll be home for Christmas You can plan on me Please have snow and mistletoe All right. Okay, now I heard some of you did more than I asked. You actually sang it, that, which was cool. That's awesome, All right? That was very nicely done. But I heard a couple of different lyrics there, okay? I heard some of you say, and presents on the tree, and some of you say presents under the tree. So which is it? What did Bing Crosby actually sing? Let's hear. Oops, I don't know why it didn't play. Let's... Oh, no, we're going to have to listen to it all again. All right, let's see how it goes. All right. Sing along. I'll be home <laughs> for Christmas. You can plan on me. Please have snow. And presents on the tree. All right, so some of you had it. Some of you knew that it was on the tree. And of course, the reason it's on the tree is because that's what they did, right? 
Coming out of the Depression, uh, there weren't a lot of big presents that were given to people. In fact, um, if you were a, a little kid at Christmas morning, you would get up and you would see uh, what Santa had put on the tree for you, or maybe in your stocking, uh, hanging by the fireplace. And it was normally just little small, maybe a little small toy or two, uh, maybe a popcorn ball or something uh, sweet that you could eat, something like that. Presents were hung on the tree. They weren't put under the tree, and so that's why he sings on the tree. Now, my favorite Christmas album is by Amy Grant, actually, which came out in the early 80s. And of course, by the time Amy Grant sings her song, she sings, These have snow and mistletoe and presents under there you the go. tree. Presents under the tree, because of course, by that time, gift-giving had become a much bigger thing in our country and in our lives, and so we would. Instead of hanging presents on the tree, that wouldn't work anymore. They'd be too big for that. We would wrap them and place them actually under the tree. Now, a couple of years ago, I bought a new Christmas album by Christian Chenoweth. Uh, she's uh, in a bunch of Christmas movies, and she actually sang in one of them, and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's got an amazing voice. I'm going to get her Christmas album. And there's lots of songs in her album, but I was kind of intrigued to see that Home for Christmas is on her album, and I was really interested. Okay, is she going to go for the classic on the tree, or is she going to go for the more modern under the tree? Let's listen. Please have snow The problem is the presents don't fit under the tree anymore, do they? So now it's presents round the tree. And in fact, check out this little guy I found. Those are all for him. Yeah, I'm not kidding you. In fact, it's not presents under the tree or around the tree. I think it's back on the tree, isn't it? And in fact, it's not just one tree, there's two trees because we need all that room for all the presents. It's kind of gotten crazy. Hasn't it? Yeah, you get, the kids are like, I want to be that kid. That's nuts, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it has kind of gotten out of hand. In fact, when we did our first Advent Conspiracy in 2008, I went back and I looked. The National Retail Federation that year predicted that Americans would spend $450 billion, with a B, $450 billion dollars on either Christmas presents, Christmas decorations, Christmas meals, Christmas parties, or Christmas travel. $450 billion. That was in 2008. Guess what it is now? Anybody want to hazard a guess? It's $850 billion we spend on Christmas every year. It's nuts. It has really kind of gotten out of hand. Now, before you panic, though, I want to talk about one thing with you. I, the, the goal of the sermon this morning is not to make you feel guilty about spending on yourselves at Christmas. In fact, look at this verse. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And um, obviously, Timothy is talking to people like us because if we can afford to spend $850 billion on Christmas, we are rich, right? And he said this, he said, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, there's a couple of things in that verse I want to make sure you don't miss. First of all, Paul says the problem is not having money to spend. 
That's not a problem, he says. The problem is putting your hope in your wealth. So in other words, if, if you think the only way you're going to have a good Christmas this year is if you spend a lot of money on presents, or if you uh, spend a lot of money on food, or if you uh, throw a big fancy party for everyone, and, and you think that's the only way you can have fun this Christmas, or the only way you can have a good Christmas, well, then that is a problem. He says we're not to put our hope in our wealth. We're to put our hope in God. But then notice the last thing he says. We put our hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In other words, God has given us stuff so that we can enjoy it. So there's nothing wrong with buying a nice present for those you love this Christmas. There's nothing wrong with spending a little extra money on that Christmas dinner so it can be extra special. There's, there's nothing wrong with uh, taking an extra trip so you can see those that you love at Christmas. God has given us our stuff for our enjoyment. But the problem comes in, again, as he said, if we put our hope in that, or if we think it'll only be a good Christmas if we spend X. That's the problem. Now, let's take a look together again at that first Christmas. We heard those familiar words read earlier in the service today, and there's a few things in here I want to point out to you about that first Christmas that kind of fly in the face of the way we celebrate Christmas these days. First of all, it begins with these words. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the Roman world. And, uh, and then, just to make sure that we know exactly when in time this event happened, Luke connects it to an actual historical event that you can go back and, and, and look at historically and check on. It was the first sentence that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. We know exactly when, uh, or approximately within a year or two, when that census was. And, and so we have a really good idea exactly what, what time period we're talking about when this happens. In other words... We're told that God sent his son Jesus into this world at a specific time, at just the right time, one of the prophecies tells us. But then look at how it goes on. He says this. So Joseph, um, he said, says, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So for this census to take place, people at least in Israel, in the Holy Land, uh, were told that they had to go back to the, their family's town, to the town where their family was from, where their family lived. And, and we're told that Joseph was no different. Now, for some reason, Joseph has relocated up into northern Israel, a, a little town called Nazareth. And there he had become betrothed to this young woman named Mary. And there, Mary, they've already found out in the last chapter, is already pregnant, but it's not Joseph's son, it's God's son. And we know from the story, at first, Joseph decided uh, that he was going to uh, kind of set Mary aside, kind of break off that engagement because he believed she had been unfaithful. But now, an angel's appeared to him and said, no, you don't have to be afraid of taking Mary for your wife, Joseph, because there's this miracle happening and you get to be a part of it. So when the census is called, Joseph dutifully does what he's been told. He takes Mary, about to give birth, pregnant, and he heads to his family town, the town where he was from. He heads back to Bethlehem, the, the place where his relatives lived. And then look at what it says. It says, when they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, 
and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him, and here's the interesting part, in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, now that's actually a really good translation. If you go back to the old King James translation that you may have heard um, in the past, it says because there was no room for them in the inn, right? And there's this picture of uh, Mary and Joseph pulling into the parking lot at the local Holiday Inn and going in and the guy behind the desk going, sorry, all the rooms are out. It's just not accurate at all. The, the, the word here is, is best translated um, upper room or guest room. You see, the homes in those days uh, were built in this way. You'd have a, you'd have a lower level. It, Bethlehem's a very hilly town, so you kind of build your house into the side of the hill. And you'd have a lower level, and that was where you kept the animals. Um, that was open to the elements and to the exterior. Um, that was where you would do a lot of the work. So if, uh, if, if you were, if you were uh, building something or things like that, that would happen down at that level. And then you would build a second room above that, a room that was more secure. It would have a, a, a door or a, maybe a ladder leading to it that could be pulled up so you could be safe at night. And in that room, that's where you would live. That's where the family would spend most of their time. That's where the family would sleep at night. And sometimes, if you were wealthy enough, you'd even build a second level above that. And that was the guest room. That was where your relatives who were, who were visiting could stay. So with that picture in mind, here's what's happened. Joseph and his pregnant wife, Mary, have come back to his town. They've gone to his relatives and all the relatives have said, sorry, guest room's already full. Now, why would they do that? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. One possibility is the guest room was full, that Mary and Joseph have come back to Bethlehem like lots of other family members have come back to Bethlehem, and maybe uh, they were a little later getting there than the others, and there were already people in those rooms. But, but I'd suggest something to you. I want you to imagine something for a minute. Let's imagine you're one of those visiting relatives. And nobody's pregnant in your family, <laughs> and you're in the upper room, and now you find out your cousin Joseph and his wife are there, and she's about to give birth. What do you think you'd do? I'd probably say, hey, you know what? They can have the guest room. They need it more than we do. But that doesn't happen, does it? And, and in fact, maybe those rooms weren't even full. The other option here is when they see their long-lost relative from Nazareth, which, by the way, had a bad reputation already, Later on, when uh, Jesus starts arriving on the scene and one of Jesus' disciples hears he's from Nazareth, do you remember what he says? Can anything good come from Nazareth? So you've got your long-lost relative Joseph, who's from Nazareth of all places, kind of a backwater, backwards town, and he shows up with a girl who's pregnant and he's not even married to her yet. Apparently the family said, you know what? The lower level's fine for you. And Mary gives birth where the animals sleep and has to place her baby in the manger where the animals fed. Not exactly the most glamorous Christmas, is it? Not exactly the most generous Christmas. You see, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that when we think of Christmas, we think of uh, warm rooms, covered in decorations with great food and lots of presents, generous flowing spirits, both the physical and the spiritual kind, right? But that's not what the first Christmas was like at all. It was Mary and Joseph 
sleeping with the animals because Joseph's family didn't want him around, and Jesus placed in a manger. Even those first witnesses aren't the family. We're told that there are angels that appear to a group of shepherds. And, and, and by the way, if, if Mary and Joseph are kind of low on the totem pole because uh, she's giving birth out of wedlock in those days, shepherds were even worse. They were seen as criminals. The, the last job in the world you could get would be shepherd. I mean, if, if you had exhausted all other possibilities, you would settle for being a shepherd. And yet it's those shepherds, these poor workers out in the field, who are the first ones to hear that the Savior of the world has been born. The angel says to them, don't be afraid, because I've got good news of great joy for all people, even guys like you. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you, and the sign is even that kind of shameful way of his birth. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Folks, all of this kind of sets up Jesus' life and his ministry. And, and so we shouldn't be surprised when years later, when Jesus is teaching, he, he says this about our lives. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He says, instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, kind of back to the whole theme of this message today, what Jesus is saying reflects what his life was like. He said, look, there's nothing wrong with possessions, but that's not what you're supposed to be storing up. That's not what you're supposed to be building up. That's not supposed to be where your focus is. He says there is a different way that you can approach your life. There's a different way that you can approach the Christmas holidays. And it's not about the stuff. It's about storing up treasures in heaven. It's about being part of God's kingdom. So folks, that's why we, this Christmas season as a church family, are partnering with a, a ministry like Collective Chicago. Again, a, an incredible group of people that are seeking to make a real difference in people's lives in the city of Chicago. Now, we learned a little bit about Collective Chicago last week. Again, it's this, um, it's this way of approaching the homeless problem in the city of Chicago that treats people with dignity and respect and um, and lets them become, they don't go to a shelter somewhere, they actually move in and live with the people that are running the ministry. And we, we get to be a part of that. And this morning, um, I want to take just a couple of minutes to let you hear a, a couple of stories from a couple of those residents. Let's listen. Uh, hello, my name is Christopher Lee, um, 18. I'm George Oliva. I'm from the west side of Chicago, the west side of Humboldt Park. I originally grew up in Austin and East Garfield neighborhood. I grew, my mom was from a third world country. My dad was, you know, dead when I was young. We've been like getting kicked out of places. We lived in hotels, almost shelters, you know. We've been living like off social security and stuff like that, so it's been hard for us. And then trying to maintain, it was days, weeks, we went without eating. I ended up coming to the United States when I was like nine. I was kicked out on the street at 15. We always had to like go fend for ourselves. Even though we was a family, everybody tried to fend for themselves. Like the last 
three years, I was really going through hell. And uh, um, I was, I was uh, like suffering through depression and then um, I didn't have nowhere to live. Not even money, just like to have food in my stomach and uh, have a, like, a place to stay at night and just, you know, sleeping on the train. My freshman year, I got into a little bit of trouble, you know, stuff like that. My dad died, I was under 15, and 13 days after my dad died, I got shot four times. Like, trying to recover, arm was broke, you know, stomach cut open. I had, a, like, three surgeries. Um, I got connected with this uh, organization called Trilogy. Um, they helped me, but the shelter that I was living in was closing, so they found me the collective. After, after all that, I tried to get in more programs, trying to find more jobs. My mentor, she, um, <laughs> she been trying to give me like stuff like these, and then once, once the uh, opening came up for the collective, she been looking to a lot of stuff. She jumped on it. She called me while I was at work. <laughs> and told me to do the application, so I went in the bathroom during work. <laughs> and, I did, and I did the application. And I went through the uh, interview process, which is great, you know. Meeting Adam for the first time was great. I remember I got there, and I was like, wait, this doesn't look like a shelter. So I took a picture with my phone and said to a, a friend, I'm like, yo, this is where I am. If I don't leave in 30 minutes, um, come look for me. <laughs> so I would say the collective's like a, I wouldn't say a housing, I'd say like, I'd say like, I wouldn't say temporary housing. I'd say like, people that's taking you in as their own, like a family, as of right now. Even though you might not be in there for so long, you feel like, you'll feel like you're a part of something or you feel like you're family. I went in, had dinner with the guys. It was refreshing, it was new, it wasn't a shelter. It was kind of like a home. No, I felt comfortable the first day, you know? Um, even though sometimes I would, hide a, a golf club, you know, the pillow, you know, just because, you know, you never know, you never know, you know, and they did find it. <laughs> you know, like doing group albums, I wasn't doing group albums with my family, like, so, and it being experienced to new things like food, all these different type of food, all these different new places and people, if I don't care for them, I feel like my day not complete. Like, if I don't ask them what's wrong, even I can be hurt myself, but I still check on them. One thing I want to say is that, like, they seen the good person that I was. They seen the best that I was when a lot of people wasn't able to see, you know, the good in me, you know? I like, you know, just being brought into, like, a family that I never really had, you know, just being out on the streets so long that you forget how to trust people. You forget that there are good people out there that don't want anything in return. They just want to be good and see people succeed. And that was, uh, that was that's what I appreciated most. You know, the thing that struck me listening to that this week and knowing what we were going to be talking about and those verses from Luke we were going to be looking at is, think about this. Jesus, um, together with his mother and earthly father, Joseph, came to Bethlehem and uh, Joseph's family rejected them. And yet here we're hearing about some guys who have been welcomed into a new family, who weren't rejected, who were given a place to live and a place to stay, a place to feel like they were part of a family. Because that's what Christmas should be all about, right? Back to our uh, friend with all of his presents there. Let me ask you a question. When, when he's 60 years old, do you think he's going to remember what he got that Christmas? 
Probably not, right? It's not going to matter. All that stuff isn't what's important. You know, I was looking through some Christmas pictures this week and kind of thinking back and you know, as I think back on my life, it's, yeah, I've got some cool presents over the years, and if I thought about it hard enough, I'd probably be able to think of a few of them and let you know what I got, but that's not what I remember. That's not what matters to me. It's not what I took pictures of and saved, right? It's the people that matter. It's, it's the relationships that are important. That's what the holidays, that's what Christmas, that's what life is really all about. Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, you know, the toys are just going to be broken. The stuff is just going to get recycled eventually, right? He says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's the relationships that you invest in this year that really will matter and last. And it's, it's things like joining God's kingdom and the work that he's doing in the world around us where we can really make a difference that will last. And so, Here's my simple prayer for you this Christmas, that, that you would have a wonderful Christmas, that you would you know, spend a little extra on some presents and, and some great meals and maybe some holiday travel and a party or two or things like that. But most importantly, that this Christmas, you would invest in things like Collective Chicago together with us and in your relationship that God has given you in your life, because that's what really matters. Amen.